everybody, second to the last session of how to get the most out of your Bible, page 39. We'll be looking at page 39 and 40 this evening. And a reminder as to where we've been and now what's left for these final two sessions. How to get the most out of your Bible has three sections to it. The first one that we spent most of our time on is a survey of an overview of the Bible's message. And then we just finished a couple of weeks looking at how to interpret the Bible, rules of interpretation, principles of interpretation. But now we want to get to what you see on page 39, part 3, and that is at the top, applying the Bible. And applying the Bible is important because it's one thing to know uh, the story. It's uh, an, another thing to also know some principles of interpretation but then if it doesn't make application to my own life, then what's it mean? So the reason that God gave us the Bible is not for doctrine. It, that a lot of people think that. They think it's for doctrine, it's for theology, it's for teaching. It includes that, but it's not for that. In fact, the most well-known verse in the Bible about the Bible says this, All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for, and then the first thing it says it's useful for is teaching or doctrine. So it's useful for that. And then it says rebuking, correcting, training, all four of those. So teaching, rebuking, correcting, training. But then, it's only then after that that it tells you why all those four things are in the Bible. The teaching, the rebuking, the correcting, the training. So that, here's the purpose. The man or woman of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So if someone asks you what's the purpose of the Bible, the purpose of the Bible is for us to be thoroughly equipped for, for every good work. And how that happens is through teaching, through uh, its rebuking effect, its correcting effect, its disciplining or training effect. So the end game for us in all this, in this whole semester that we've been going through, and as we study the Bible and as we get its message, is for us to be thoroughly equipped for every good work. That's what it says Scripture is given for. And it also says, that passage says, uh, all Scripture is useful. All Scripture is designed to do that. So this application idea, these last two weeks now, is very extremely important. If we don't know how to apply the Bible, then we've missed the point of the Bible. And further, all of the Bible is designed to do that. It's designed to be applied practically to our lives. Well, that creates some challenges for us. The fact that all of the Bible is supposed to be applied to my life and to, to your life. And the reason that creates challenges is because, as you know, if you've had even a cursory reading of the Bible, there's some really weird stuff in there. And it's foreign to us completely. The kinds of things that happen, we're going to remind it of some of those tonight. But, you know, in one instance, you have the army of Israel having recaptured a box called the Ark of the Covenant. This box is a, a holy box where the presence of God is said to dwell. This is in the first part of your, first part of your Bible. And it had been stolen by another nation. And David and his army are able to recapture it. And they're pleased about this, as you might imagine, because this is the, the presence of God, is with this box. And as they're bringing it back, 
They're not supposed to touch it. They built a special cart in order to transport it back to Israel. And on the way back, some of you know the story, it starts to fall and a guy reaches out to steady it and he touches it uh, in disobedience to what God had said. What happens to that guy? He's dead. Summarily struck dead. Now you read something like that and you go, huh, what am I supposed to do with that? How does that make me thoroughly equipped for every good work? How does that apply to you? How does that apply to me on December 8th? Are we on December 8th? 7th? December 7th of 2022. Uh, and there are all kinds of passages like that. And if you, if you don't bridge that distance between what the Bible teaches and where we are today, if you don't do that, then you're going to fall into, if we're honest, where many of us have fallen over the years. And we say, you know, I just don't get it. I mean, I know it's really important. There are some things that I get, and so I read it, and I want to obey it. And I go to church, and sometimes the pastor explains it, you know, clearly or not. And, you know, so I do the best I can with it. But there's just this, all this stuff that's completely foreign to me. So we have been, the reason we offer this class, and the reason that we want everybody who comes into our church to go through how to get the most out of your Bible, and the reason that we've been teaching it for about 20 years now, for everybody that comes into CBC, is so that we can take some of that mystery out of it. So that we can help people then to see, okay, yeah, that still applies to me, even though the circumstances are foreign to me. There are still principles out of that that have meaning for, for me today. So we're actually going to go back and look at that issue with the Ark of the Covenant and the striking dead of the guy who uh, reached out to touch it. We'll come back to that. But those are the kinds of things that can be too foreign for us, and if they're too foreign for us, then we give up. We don't want you to do that, and so I hope these next two weeks will be helpful in that regard. So page 39, applying the Bible. We've seen that the Bible was written over a, 1600, a period of 1,600 years, 40 different authors. So you have 66 books in your Bible. 40 different authors were used by God to compose those 66 books. They wrote at different times from different backgrounds and about varied events and circumstances. And yet, the Bible's consistent in its message because although humans compose the Bible, God is its ultimate author. Behind all 40 of those was God overseeing so that what they wrote is what He wanted written. And further, the Bible is one story. It's focused on Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is God's answer to what has gone wrong in His otherwise good world. The Bible begins with creation and the Creator giving us an orientation to His world. But the fall of humanity into sin meant the world became distorted or disoriented. So we have an orientation, then, as I talked about at the beginning of this semester, a disorientation. But thankfully, God has stepped in to redeem or to make right what's gone wrong by the entrance of sin and thereby reorient His world to its original design. That reorientation we have seen comes through the seed of a woman, which produces God's chosen Redeemer, who will come through His chosen people. And that's the, the story of the Bible then. It's about God's relentless march toward the fulfillment of His promise to make right what has gone wrong in His world through a chosen one who would come through the seed of the woman, and we know that to be Jesus Christ. So, 
that third paragraph, despite the fact that the Bible is a big book containing different types of literature, addressing multiple issues, the message of each passage can be summarized really in one phrase, people in situations before God. And you may remember many weeks ago I said two of those things never change, people and God. And since people in God don't change, now you can make application of every portion of the Bible because every portion of the Bible is telling you something about people and it's telling you something about God. And so those are applicable then to us, even though there's this time difference and this cultural difference and, and all of that. The situations are quite varied. Their situations are not yours or mine, but we're the same as they are and God has, has never changed. Middle of that third paragraph, while the particulars then of our situations are different, both people and God are the same, and therefore the Bible's principles are relevant for all of us in every age. In order for that purpose to be achieved, it's necessary that we apply the principles of biblical passages. We have to apply them. So this section is going to focus on practical examples of gleaning principles from the Bible and how those can be applied. Okay? So it's got to be applied. Everybody good with that? If it's not applied, then we've just been spinning our wheels here for this uh, whole semester. And in fact, every time, every Sunday when we get together and we open up the Bible, if we don't apply it, then we're just really wasting our time. We're not doing what God said He gave the, the Bible to do. So here are three steps to applying the Bible. The first one is what we've spent time on already uh, the last couple of weeks, and that is understanding the original application. That requires understanding, as we've seen the last couple of weeks, the author's intended meaning by following the principles that we laid out in part two of this course, understanding the Bible. So the first thing is I got to know what it meant to them. Because remember one of the four principles was a text cannot mean what it never meant? It can't mean today something that it never meant to them. So I first got to know what it meant when it was originally written to the people to whom it was written. But now once I know what it meant to them, now, I want to see how I can make application of that to, to me and to, to you. So the first step we've already seen over the last two weeks, and that is uh, using these principles of interpretation to understand the Bible. But now we want to spend our time tonight looking at particularly step two. Abstract the continuing truth. And I'll talk about why we use the word abstract a bit later, probably toward the end of our, our time. But what we want to do is, what we're saying there is, you found out what it meant to them because you applied those principles of interpretation that we talked about the last couple of weeks. But having done that, now you want to know, what's the truth contained in that? In that story, even if it was a weird story, even if it's foreign to, to my circumstances and my situation, what's the truth found in that that continues? And you want to then make application of that continuing truth to, to yourself. Well, how do you find what that continuing truth is? First thing is, we say here, measure the distance between then and there and here and now. So what you've got in the Bible is you've got passages of all sorts that are written then and, and there. Different places there at a different time then. And you want to get from then and there, their place, their time, to our place and, and our time. But there are some, there's some gaps that make that not, not automatic, that you have to do a little bit of, give a little bit of thought to in order to bridge the distance between us and, and them. 
So there's then and there, there's where we are, and there's this gap. And the gap's created by a few things. Look at the bottom of page 39. The first one is the genre. And you see there that says type of literature. That's what genre means, the type, the category. So why didn't we just say leave it at type? Why didn't we just say category? Because I think the word genre is really cool. And I wanted to, uh, okay? And I, and I wanted you to know that I know what genre means, okay? So there it is. But it, it, all it means is the different types of, types of books in the, in the Bible. And of those 66 books that comprise the Bible, they are of different types. And if you don't get those different types right, you'll get the interpretation wrong and you'll get the application wrong. Interpretation and application, get them both wrong. Like I, remember, I, I said last week that you have a book in your Bible. One of the 66 is the book of Proverbs. And that Proverbs are a particular type of genre, a particular type of literature. And if we don't get that right, we can really mess up interpreting Proverbs. That Proverbs are not legal guarantees. They're not legal guarantees. They are general truths. So they tell you things that generally hold across the board, but they don't, there are exceptions to them. And if you think they're legal guarantees, now you'll make application of them in that way. And if they don't work out in your life, then you'll think you did something wrong, or worse, God was wrong in what he said. So, for example, Proverbs 22.6, I mentioned last week. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. That's a proverb. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he's old, he will not depart from it. So that's saying, generally speaking, you train up a child the right way, it turns out the right way. But it's generally speaking. It's not always true. And you see examples of it not being true in some lives in the Bible itself. But if you take it as a legal guarantee and something goes awry with your child, what are you going to think? If, and if your church teaches that, that it's a legal guarantee, and they have young people, as, as every church does in a fallen world, you know, you have people who uh, run into difficulties and they wander, they go their own, go their own route. And so the, the whole church is going to not, they may look down on the child, unfortunately, but they also may look down on the, the parents because the parents did something wrong if you take that as a legal guarantee. You guys see what I'm saying? So that's a type of literature, a proverb. You have to take that into consideration when you read and interpret and apply a proverb. Likewise, poetry. And you've got poetry in the Bible. And in fact, you've got an entire book devoted to, to poetry. The uh, book of Psalms, and you've got 150, 150 psalms. And the psalms are quite literally songs. They were theological poems written to be sung. And like all songs, the uh, psalms have an emotional quality to them. So we have listed there for you Psalm uh, 121. Psalm 121. Let me read for you a portion of what Psalm 121 says. Psalm 121, The Lord will keep you from all harm. He will watch over your life. The Lord will watch over your coming and going, both now and forevermore. Now that first line I read, the Lord will keep you from all harm. Anybody ever been harmed? 
And I read the story of a pastor who was going to preach on Psalm 121. And so he's preparing to preach in the week, uh, that week, he gets news that, very sad, tragic news, that a young person in his uh, church was killed in a car accident. And the Lord will keep you from all harm. Now, now what? Right? So is God wrong? It's a poem. And meant to be sung. And like all poems, they have an emotional quality to them. They express the emotions of the writer, and they're designed to evoke emotions when they're sung. Emotional language works best when, it is, when it's just said. It's raw and it's unnuanced. So think about a love song. It's a song. It's supposed to be a love song. But if the song has a line in it that says, I like you more than the last girl I dated, that's probably not going to work real well, is it? You know, but, so it's going to say something like, I love you more than anything in the world. And, and the truth is, if you're a Christian, even that technically that's not true, right? Because you're to love God above all. So even technically that's not, not true, but it's understood. And it's designed to be unnuanced and to have this emotional power to it. And so the language of the Psalms tends to be absolute for that emotional effect. So the authors of a book that I recommend for you, I believe we have it in our resource center. I always have to say it that way now. I think we have it in our resource center because on Sunday mornings I recommend books when I'm preaching and then people go running to the resource center to get them. And I say, we've got it in our resource center and then it turns out we don't. And then the natives are angry. They're angry at the, at the resource center people and they're angry at me. And so I think we have this book in our resource center. And the book is called How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. How to read the Bible for all it's worth. We do have it. All right. Yes. Because you, you bought it, read it, and returned it. Is it? Okay. <laughs> so we have it. Good. Yay. Thank you, Kitty. Thank you. For that. So it's there. And here's a quote, though, from that book. Uh, it's got a section. It's got chapters in it about the different kinds of books in the Bible and what the different features of those genres, those kinds of books of the Bible, uh, have. So with regard to the Psalms, they say this, the Psalms do not guarantee a pleasant life. It's a misunderstanding and over-literalization of the language of the Psalms to infer from some of them that God promises to make his believers happy and their lives trouble-free. David, who expresses in the Psalms God's blessings in the strongest terms, lived a life that was filled with almost constant tragedy and disappointment. Yet he praises and thanks God enthusiastically at every turn, even in his lament. So think about that. King David was the guy who wrote most of the, the Psalms. And you think about his life, the truth is his life was not trouble, was not trouble free. And so they were not intended to be uh, trouble to tell you that your life's supposed to be trouble free. So page 39, one of the areas of distance for us as we apply the Bible is what kind of book are we dealing with? And you've got books like poetry, so you have to take that into consideration. Second, you've got narrative. A narrative, as the, the name suggests, is a type of book that is narrating. So it's someone telling the story of other people, narrating what happened to them. And a lot of the Bible is that. A lot of the Bible 
is the story of what happened to other people. It's the story of what happened to people that are not you, that are not me. The story of what happened in the first part of the Bible, the old, that we call the Old Testament, it's mostly the story of what happened to Jews in a nation called Israel. So it's mostly, it's mostly about that, narrating what happened to them when they were enslaved in Egypt for 400 years, and then when they were brought out of Egypt, and then when they were wandering in the wilderness for, for 40 years, then when they came into the land that God had promised them. It's all this stuff that's happening to, to them. It's narrating it. So if you don't take into account that when the Bible is telling the story, narrating what happened to other people, if you don't if you don't remember that, hey, this is what happened to them, it's not necessarily saying this is what's going to happen to me. And that's what we have there for you, descriptive versus prescriptive. Descriptive is describing. It's describing what happened to them. It's narrating what happened to them. But it's not necessarily telling you that you have to do that. So Old Testament, like I said, is almost all about God's interactions with His chosen people, the Jews, and His chosen nation, Israel. You come to the New Testament, and you still have things like you know, Acts chapter 3. On Sunday mornings, I'm preaching through the book of Acts. But in Acts chapter 3, here's how it starts. Peter and John went to the temple, it says. Peter and John went to the temple. Okay, that's narrating. The book of Acts is narrative. It's telling what Peter and John did. But I know it's not telling you to go to the temple. You know how I know it's not telling you to go to the temple? Because there ain't no temple. <laughs> the temple got destroyed a few decades after that was written. So there is no temple now. There's no chance for you to go to the temple. It's just telling you what Peter and John did. And then it tells you that Peter and John were actually able to heal a guy there who had been born without the ability to, to walk. It's describing what happened with them, not prescribing what you're supposed to, to do. So a lot of people get the idea, well, hey, Peter and John walked up and healed a guy. I should be able to walk up and, and heal a guy. Well, it doesn't prescribe that for you, it's saying that that's what, that's what they did, and God had empowered them to do that. Now, you see in the notes there, we have Judges chapter 6. Judges chapter 6. So just like I uh, described uh, a bit of what... Um, um, Psalm 121 says, Judges chapter 6. So what's that about? Um, Judges is uh, the seventh book in your Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, and then Judges. And the, judge, the book of Judges, if you, if you read through it, it's got 21 chapters in it, you'll, you'll be depressed. So just be aware of that when you go through the book of Judges. <laughs> You're going to come out of it depressed because it was a dark time in the nation of the life of the nation of Israel. And it has this refrain in it regularly that says, In those days Israel had no king, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And it all goes south as people are just doing their own thing. All right, so that's the book of Judges. There's an episode in the book of Judges, chapter 6, where one of the the guys who was a leader of Israel, given the title of judge, that's thus the name, uh, Gideon. And in Judges chapter 6, Gideon is a leader in Israel, and Israel constantly has its enemies. 
uh, as you just do a cursory reading through the first part of your Bible. And they have these, uh, these enemies that are coming against them. They're afraid, and in fact, they're outnumbered. They're outnumbered like 10 to 1. And Gideon, as the leader, says, you know, God, what are we supposed to do? And God says, you know, I want you to go. I want you to go into battle, and I want you to go into battle with, you know, a tenth of the number of guys that they have, and I'll take care of you. And Gideon thinks to himself, you know, that's a lousy idea because we're outnumbered, they're fierce, and he doesn't say this, but in effect, he doesn't believe God. So Gideon comes up with his own idea. Hey, I tell you what, God, why don't we do this? <laughs> I mean, this is what he does. This is in Judges chapter 2. Why don't we do this? Why don't I take, why don't I take a fleece? So I take a, you know, something that's been sheared off of a, a sheep, and I'm going to lay it out, and then if it's wet, you know, we'll go one direction in the morning, and if it's dry, we'll go a different direction. Let's, let's just not be so hasty about this, God. So that's the, that's the story. It's been argued. Uh, based upon that story, that when a person is trying to make a decision, have any of you ever heard somebody say, I put a fleece out before the Lord? People say this. If you want to know if you should do this or that, then put a fleece out before the Lord. I don't literally mean go and you know, shear a sheep, but they mean just set up some condition. And then if that thing happens, you know you're supposed to do it. So, you know, God, if you really want me to marry this person, then make the phone ring in the next five seconds. And then if the phone rings in the next five seconds, it's a sign from God. I mean, that's the way lots of people have done this. And they call it putting out a fleece because Gideon put this fleece out to see what the will of God is. But that approach ignores a couple of major principles. First, it ignores the original intention of the writer of the book of Judges. In the words of those authors of that book I mentioned a little bit ago, How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth, remember, a passage cannot mean what it never meant. And so in this case, it's obvious that neither God nor the human author of Judges was recommending Gideon's method as a technique for getting the will of God. In fact, we learn from Judges chapter 6 itself, from the passage itself, when Gideon says this. Here's what he says. He's talking to God, and he says, If you will save Israel by my hand, and then this is what it says. As you have promised, look, I will place a wool fleece on the floor. If there's dew only on the fleece and all the ground is dry, then I'll know that you will save Israel by my hand as you said. Now notice those phrases, as you promised and as you said. Here's Gideon saying to God, you promised, I know. And you said, I know. But let's just make sure you really mean it. This whole episode is an episode of disobedience. Gideon doesn't believe God. He doesn't trust. He doesn't trust God. So for us to come up with this idea that we're supposed to follow what Gideon did is quite contrary to what that story is actually is actually communicating. So it was uh, an act of, of disobedience. So take a look, if you will, at the bottom of page 39 then, again. And here's another type of book in your Bible. And these are just examples, just three examples. You've got poetry, you've got narrative, gospels. 
So what are the Gospels? Most of you know that that starts the second part of your Bible, the New Testament. And there are four books out of the 66 that are called the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the first four of the New Testament. And they are narrative as well. They're narrating what happened. They're narrating what happened primarily in the life of Jesus. Because now we've got the New Testament, and the reason the New Testament starts is because this one in the first part who's been promised has come, and he is born. We're going to celebrate Christmas. The Christmas story is given in the Gospels, and it gives us the life and ministry and death and burial and resurrection of, of Jesus. That's all in the, the Gospels. So somebody just determined the will of God there. If, if you... <laughs> Somebody was just praying. Just have the. <laughs> so it's it's the gospel, and if you have a red letter edition of, of the Bible, which means the words of Jesus are in red, then that's in the first four books primarily, because that's where he walked the earth. Those are about his life and ministry before he ascended back to the Father, from whom he he came. So the Gospels, they're narrative, but they're a particular type of narrative. It's all focused on Jesus. And it's focused on the human life of the Lord Jesus Christ. And his life and teachings in those four books are woven together to prove that he's the special person known as the Messiah, the coming one, the anointed one, in the first part of the Bible. And having shown that, as you read the Gospels, the desired response is for us to believe in Jesus for eternal life. In fact, one of the Gospel writers, John, said that, these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His, in his name. All right. So that's what the Gospels are. If you're then reading the Gospels and you want to make application of what the Gospels are, teaching to your life personally, then you want to remember that that is the overall point of all four of those books, is to show who Jesus is. So now, bottom of page 39, you see we have Matthew chapter 8 listed there. You see it? Matthew 8. So Matthew's the first of the Gospels, first book in the New Testament. Chapter 8 has this episode that many of us are familiar with. You remember the story narrative where Jesus is in uh, the boat with his uh, apostles and their experience, some of his apostles, their experienced fishermen. But this storm comes up quickly and they're sure they're going to die. You guys remember that? And the Bible says that, I mean, I, I love it. They're going crazy. They're scared to death and like literally scared to death. And Jesus is asleep. And they wake him up. And they say, Master, don't you care that we're going to die? What are you? A Calvinist or something? <laughs> you just think that God is going to take care of all of this? And Jesus just calmly says, Peace be still. And they here's what in the King James Version of that story, it says that, they were afraid, very afraid, when the storm came up. And then they wake Jesus up, and he just says, Peace be still, and it's immediately still. And you know what it says after that? It says, and they were very, very afraid. They're even more afraid. The King James actually says they were sore afraid. 
Why are they more afraid after he calms it? They realized in whose presence they were. This is someone completely different than us. This is not a mere mortal. Which is the point of the Gospels? The point of that story is to show that Jesus is God. And that's why the bottom of page 39 says Gospels. You see it says their deity of Christ? To show his deity, his godness, that he's God. Now, then as you apply that to your life, you read that and you say, how does that apply to my life? You know, sometimes you'll hear sermons and you'll say, hey, look, you go through the storms of life and your life is like the boat that's being tossed to and fro and, you know, and all of that. And that's not exactly what's, what's happening there. Uh, certainly, we all have trials. There are passages in the Bible that talk about trials and all of that. But this one is talking about God and what God is like and what God can do. And you're supposed to come away from that story with the idea that God can do anything. Now, that'll apply to your trials, won't it? Because God can do anything. God can, God can get me out of this if He wants to get me out of this. He can accomplish whatever it is He has designed in this particular situation. But it's all designed to teach that, that Jesus is God. All right, top of page 40. So you're trying to get from then, here, from then and there to here and now. You've got some roadblocks to that. One of those is you've just got different kinds of literature in the Bible. So in order to apply it to your life, you need to take that into consideration. Is it poetry? Is it a proverb? Is it, is it narrative? Is it in the Gospels? And what are the differences between all those? Here at top of page 40 is another, uh, another area that creates distance for us, and that is culture. I mean, things in the Bible and in Bible times were just different than they are now. And because they're different, it creates these situations where you read and, and you sometimes just scratch your head. What is, what is that? What am I supposed to do with that? But all of it's supposed to be useful for you. All Scripture is useful. So if it's all supposed to be useful, then I've got to do something with it. So here's a couple examples. The parapet in Deuteronomy 22 and, and verse 8. Deuteronomy 22 and verse 8. Here's what that verse says. When you build a new house, make a parapet around your roof so that you may not bring the guilt of bloodshed on your house if someone falls from the roof. Now, where's Deuteronomy? Deuteronomy is the fifth book in your Bible, and it's part of the law. And in fact, the word Deuteronomy means second law. So it's the second time that God had given the law, the Ten Commandments. Deuteronomy 5, you have the Ten Commandments given a second time. They were given the first time in the second book of your Bible in Exodus 20. So Deuteronomy is part of the law. God gives these laws to Israel, his nation. This is the way you're supposed to do things. These are the things you're supposed to do. These are the things you're not supposed to do. And one of those laws is when you build a house, make a parapet around your roof so that you may not bring the guilt of bloodshed on your house if someone falls from the roof. So it turns out a parapet is like a little wall, a fence. When you build a house and you put it around the perimeter of the the roof. Now, why, you know, why would you be given that 
command? Well, because um, roofs at that time were flat. And they were used, those flat roofs were used kind of like you might use a family room, a living room, maybe a patio, you know, a screened-in porch. They would go there in the cooler part of the day, and they would actually, this is where you would entertain people. They would, they would come up to the top of your house on this flat roof. So you had to put a fence around it so nobody fell off. And if somebody falls off because you didn't build your fence, or maybe you built a lousy fence, or it's uh, in disrepair and somebody falls off and they are harmed, you're guilty. You're guilty of bloodshed. If the person dies, you're guilty of that. I mean, it's a severe penalty. All right, so you don't have a flat roof. You didn't know what the word parapet meant, but now you do. And so when you have the holidays coming up here, you, you just find ways to invoke the word genre <laughs> and parapet, okay? All right, so you don't have a flat roof. I don't have a flat roof. How am I going to, what does that mean to me? What, what's, what was the point of that? The point of that was you going out of your way to keep other people safe. So, are there things that you should do at your house that I should do at my house to keep other people safe? I mean, if you have children going through the house, you put, I mean, it was years before I could actually open a cabinet at our house <laughs> because there were latches all over the stuff and I couldn't figure out how to get in and, <laughs> and all that, right? We did that for the safety of the, of the kids. Um, you know, we have codes. We have building codes. Building codes are actually a good thing. I mean, I'm not a builder, so there may be some dumb building codes. Maybe lots of dumb building codes. Dumb building codes. I don't know. But the idea that we have codes, and like if you're an electrician, David's an electrician, and if you're an electrician, that you have to do things a certain way, and you have to use a certain kind of wire, and you know that it has to be it needs to be inspected that it was done right, so it doesn't short and catch fire and a bunch of people die, right? Or, okay, I'm not a builder, I'm not an electrician, but I live in Michigan and it snows. And the UPS guy comes to my door somewhat regularly these days because we get a lot of junk from Amazon. I don't order any of this junk, but it comes to my, to my door. Almost daily there is stuff at my door from Amazon. There's a woman in my house who orders this stuff. And that, it, when it snows, that guy's going to be coming up to my door. What do I want to do for him? You, you want to shovel the walk or pay somebody to shovel the walk. Or, and and you, want to, you, you want to salt it if you can, right? So that person doesn't slip and fall and hurt themselves. So even though it's a different kind of house, it's a different situation, what, what's the same here? People are involved. And people are valuable. People were valuable back in Deuteronomy 22. People are still valuable. Our lives are valuable. And so we go out of our way to try to preserve and protect those lives. And the reason people are valuable is because God is most valuable and we're made in his image. And that was true in Deuteronomy 28. And it's, it's true now. So you got culture, but even with those cultural differences, there are things you can see that are the same today as they were then, and you can make application of them. Here's another one, head coverings. 1 Corinthians 11 in your New Testament. And it talks about, uh, in, in worship, 
it talks about women in worship in the church wearing a, a head covering. Back when we started our church, back when we started um, this church 20 years ago, uh, the year prior to that, my wife and I and our then two very small children went on the road and we visited 10 churches, sometimes out of state, to garner support for our new church. We were going around with our hand open saying we'd give us money to start our new church. And we had, and we had actually we went to 18 churches and 10 churches supported us for the first two years of our church. One of those churches we went to was in Illinois and they believed that the Bible taught that women during the church service had to have a covering on their head. And this comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 11 that talks about at that time, 2,000 years ago, that actually happened in the city of Corinth to which 1 Corinthians 11 was written. They take that to mean that today, every woman who comes into the church has to have a head covering on. So I came into the church with three women, my wife and my two daughters. They're not accustomed to having a covering on their head. So they have, the church has, little doilies at the front that they pass out if you don't have one. And to, of course, to show respect, we, uh, the girls put these on, my wife put, put one on. And that's what, the, uh, that's, what the church, that's what the church believed that 1 Corinthians 11 meant for us today. Now, that was something that happened in the culture of Corinth in Greece 2,000 years ago. And one of the things that it was designed to do was to maintain a difference between men and women. A, a, a visible symbol that men and women are different. Now, what I just said just now used to be just 20 years ago, 30 years ago, certainly you know, 50, 60 years ago. I'm 60 now. When I was born, if somebody were to say, hey, men and women are different, that would be non-controversial. We live in a weird day, don't we? So now that's something like that is, is controversial. But back then it was, it was important enough to emphasize. And so men and women didn't dress the same way uh, in order to emphasize that God-given difference. And by the way, that difference still obtains. Now the way you express that difference changes from culture to culture. So this head covering thing was a, a cultural symbol to express uh, a, a truth. And in fact, in your Bible, you've got at least six of these. I'm going to read them for you. Six of these different kinds of cultural things that you find in the Bible that you don't have to follow the exact form that they followed culturally then, but the thing that it was symbolizing is important. I'm reading from... Just a couple of paragraphs from a guy named Wayne Grudem, G-R-U-D-E-M, G-R-U-D-E-M. Uh, we have his theology book in our resource center, I'm pretty sure. And here's what he says. The question of which New Testament commands are culturally relative is really not a very complicated question. He says, when we look at, he, he says, um, 
the, the commands that are culturally relative are primarily or exclusively those that concern physical actions that carry symbolic meaning. Physical actions that carry symbolic meaning. That is, you physically do something to symbolize uh, something that you're, a meaning you're wanting to convey. Physical actions that carry a symbolic meaning. When we look at the commands in the New Testament, there are only six main examples of passages about which people wonder if they are transcultural or if they are culturally relative. Transcultural means every culture has got to do these. So our head covering friends 20 years ago, they thought, hey, that's a command in the New Testament that applies to every culture, no matter where, no matter what time. Or is it culturally relative? And he says there are just uh, six of these. Uh, the holy kiss. Do you guys remember reading in your New Testament, greet one another with the holy kiss? So that was a culturally relative way of expressing fellowship. You know, today we might do that with a hug. We might do that with a handshake. The idea of expressing physically, hey, I care for you, I have affection for you, I'm glad to see you idea, is a good one. And it's a good one to practice in church if we're going to be people who love one another and that kind of thing. But the holy kiss was the way they did it. Foot washing. So there's foot washing. When I was a kid, I grew up in my Pentecostal church. We physically did foot washings in, in church. People took their shoes off, took their socks off, and they washed each other's feet. Now, look, I'm not saying any, none of those are sinful to do, but I think they're unnecessary to do because the reason the, the whole foot washing thing was a deal 2,000 years ago in dusty Palestine, what would happen? People were in sandals a lot of the time, and when they came into a home, they've got dirty feet. And so it was a sign of love and servanthood to, to a person to have a bowl ready. You had a bowl of water ready when they came in. To, to wash the feet. So we can have you know, other ways to do, to do the same kind of thing, to show people, to welcome them, to take their coat, to have a place to hang their coat when they come in, you know, that, that kind of thing. Head coverings for women. That same passage about head coverings for women talks about short hair for men. That was the way that these differences between men and women in that culture were shown. One was short hair for men and uh, the head coverings for women. No jewelry or braided hair on women. There's a couple passages in the Bible about that. But again, 2,000 years ago, that symbolized uh, something. And then the last one is lifting hands in, in prayer. So you have six of these in the New Testament. Uh, I'm convinced. If you disagree, it's okay, but show up with your head covering on then, then next week. Um, that are culturally relative. They are these physical things that carry a symbolic meaning and that Symbolic meaning can be carried through different physical actions other than the ones that were happening at that time. But you've got to deal with that distance, culture. And then, take a look at page 40, there is the distance of theology, just different teaching at different times in your Bible. Different teaching at different times in your Bible. Here's what I mean by that. Um, that in the first part of your Bible... In the Old Testament, you know, it's got Israel, you've got the Jews, and you've got the law, the law that God gave to Israel through Moses. Well, the law had all of these regulations, the parapet, all sorts of things. 
And we're no longer in that, right? We're no longer in what they were under Moses and under the law of Moses. You know we're not. Because as you read through the law, it had things like you're supposed to give offerings of animals. You're supposed to sacrifice animals. You guys remember the sacrificial system? So we don't do that anymore. So you know we're not in that anymore. So it's, it's, a, it's different now. We're under, notice it says under number three, progress of revelation. So over time, God has progressively made more things known about himself and his plan. And that has changed at different times the things that he requires us to do. So God used that Old Testament sacrificial system, we learn later, to point to the ultimate sacrifice, Jesus Christ. And when the ultimate sacrifice comes, then you don't need to offer sacrifice anymore. So our church building, our auditorium, doesn't have an altar. And there's no priest at the altar. I'm not a priest. In fact, there is no such thing as a priest in the New Testament even. The only priest we have is Jesus, who is our high priest. And he has offered sacrifice of himself for us, the New Testament says, once for all. And all of those other sacrifices were pointing to that, that ultimate sacrifice. So that there is no altar. Now you can go into some churches and there's a priest and an altar. Do you know why? Do you know why there's a priest and an altar? Because there's a sacrifice being done there. When, when the host is consecrated, when the cup is blessed, then that turns into the literal, according to some, many, hundreds of millions of people worldwide, that turns into the literal body and blood of Jesus. And when you partake of that, that's a re-crucifixion of Jesus every time. So the priest has to be there to do it. It's a sacrifice. There's an actual, they actually call it the altar. And I'm very careful not to call the front of our church an altar. The closest thing we have to an altar is the cross. Because that's where the sacrifice was, was given, right? So I, I belabor that to just say those are obvious ways that God has progressively, over time, made known what his plan is. And the sacrifices were a picture pointing to this ultimate sacrifice. And when you come to the New Testament, that's exactly what we're told. We're told that all of that stuff could never take away sin. But now the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world has come and he has died and offered sacrifice once for all. And he is then our, our high priest. So, if you look on page 40, you see the box there, the rectangle going from left to right. You just got these different seven, some call these seven dispensations. There's seven different ways that God has said, this is how I'm making myself known and my plan known. Now, I don't care whether you memorize any of those. I don't even care whether you agree that there's seven of these. Some people think, you know, I don't think there's really... I don't think there's a, much of a difference between the one and the other. And so there's not seven, there's six, or there's five. Hear this. Everybody's got to agree that there's at least four. At least four. Here's why. 
like the Garden of Eden where Adam and Eve were, that was a different one. We, we all agree? Right? Adam and Eve, innocence, no sin. You've never been to anything like that, right? Me neither. Okay. So the garden was like its own thing. But then after they sin and they disobey God, now, uh, later, God gives his law to regulate these rebellious people. And so under the law, with the sacrifices and all that, that's a different setup, true? You're not under that anymore. So you weren't in the garden. So you've got to believe in that one. You're not under the law. You've got to believe in that one. We now live in the time where God is carrying out his work through his church that Jesus founded. So some people call that the age of the church. You see it on your rectangle there? Over to the right, the church. And then eventually there's going to be the kingdom. There's going to be the eternal state. Heaven. Right? And neither... So we're in the church one right now. There's at least four. The garden, the law, and the church, and then eventually the kingdom. And all of those are, are different. So as you're reading things that are in the first part of the Bible and they are under the law, you're no longer under the law. So you have to then make application of what's the same between that time and that place to this time and, and, and our place, even though the situations themselves are different. And then you see the refutation of false, false teaching. Galatians 5.2, Galatians 5.2, uh, in the book of Galatians, it's got six chapters, and the book is all about uh, making sure that people understand that we are no longer under the law. We're no longer under the law in the first part of the Bible. That's what the book of Galatians is about. Because there were people who were teaching that, in fact, the law still continues, and you still have to be under it. And Paul, in the New Testament, who wrote the book of Galatians, is, is writing to refute that. Now, he says in chapter 5 and verse 2, you see it listed there, chapter 5 and verse 2? He says there, if someone is circumcised, because that was a piece of the law back in the old, that was part of the law. If someone is, then they have denied Christ. Well, you want to be careful as you, as you read that. Because the truth is, people may have gone through that ceremony just for, or for medical reasons, not for religious reasons, and it doesn't mean you can't be a Christian, but that could sound that way, couldn't it, if you're not careful? But in fact, it says that because it's refuting this false teaching from the, from the law. All right, and then lastly, there is sidewalk versus bridge passages. Sidewalk versus bridge. So as we try to bridge the gap to apply what the Bible says to us today versus then and, then and there, remember that you've got some passages where there's a short distance between them and us and other passages where it's, it's quite large. The short distance passages are sometimes called sidewalk. So they just come right up to you as you read them, and it's pretty easy to see how they apply to you. There are passages like that. And so sidewalk just means, you know, it's just the distance from your curb, your front curb, to your front door. And it comes right up to you. So what would be a passage like that? 
1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 3. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3. Here's what it says. It is God's will that you be sanctified. Now, that's what that verse says. It's God's will. God wants you to be sanctified. The word sanctified means set apart, holy, different, different than the world, different than non-Christian people. God wants you to be different. So it's God's will that you be sanctified. And then after the word sanctified, if you read it in your NIV, there's a colon. It's God's will that you be sanctified, colon. And then here's what comes next. That you avoid sexual immorality. So what's one of the ways that you're different from the world, that you're holy, that you're set apart? You avoid sexual immorality. Now that just is a sidewalk passage. It's just telling you, avoid. And they had sexual immorality 2,000 years ago, and they got sexual immorality, we've got it today, and in both cases, it's to be avoided. Now, the forms that sexual immorality might take today, you know, we've got online stuff that, of course, they, they didn't have. Um, so, you know, back then they had temple prostitution in the, in, in the city of Corinth, for example. So that was a form of sexual immorality. So you've got different forms of it, but sexual immorality nonetheless. And for all of us, 2,000 years ago or today, it's a sidewalk passage, straight up, it's to be avoided. And that's why it says in parentheses there, these deal with universal sins, universal theology or universal teaching. These are things that apply to everybody, universally. But then you got the bridge passages. And the bridge passages are the ones where you got that large distance. So I told you at the beginning that I'd come back to the guy and the box and the Ark of the Covenant. All right, I'm going to do that in our final 60 seconds. So stay awake. Because it's warm in here. Is it warm? It's not warm? I should not have worn this thing. I feel warm. All right, so th these are the bridge passages, though, are the ones where you've got a lot of distance. And in those, where you've got the weird stuff going on that they're doing, and there's the Ark of the Covenant that we don't have, and the presence of God is tied to that particular uh, piece of furniture that was to uh, reside in the temple in, in Jerusalem. So how do I make application of that to me today? What you want to ask yourself is, the bridge passages is, what is this saying about God? What is this saying about people? What is this saying about God's grace to people? In all of those passages, you want to ask that. So, in that incident where you've got the Ark of the Covenant, it's coming along, and God says, don't touch it. Why, why do you think, I'm asking, just what do you think, why do you think God is saying, don't touch it? Do you remember where that, the Ark of the Covenant resided? It was in the temple, and it was in the inner compartment of the temple called the Holy of Holies. That's where it went, in the Holy of Holies. So this box, in God's pre it, 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 it emphasized the holiness of God. That God is holy, and you're not. That's why you can't touch it. In yourself, in your own sin, you... As a sinful person, me as a sinful person, we cannot approach God. And God is, God is emphasizing that. There's this 
great gulf between my character and your character. And so to make the point so that Israel gets it, this guy goes and, and touches the, the ark of the covenant and he, he dies. Now you guys are looking at the, uh, the, wa- the lone wasp that has survived, the hornet that has survived into the winter time now and has now come, all right, that is a demon wasp, okay? <laughs> to try to interrupt my last 30 seconds here, okay? All right, so, but it tells you something about God. God is holy, we're not. And, and, and so then it should cause you to say, how is that gap going to be bridged between the character of God and me? And what does the Bible say that the answer to that is? It's in the Lord Jesus, right? And so when you read stories like that, you think about who God is, you think about who we are, and how God's grace has been extended to us, particularly through Jesus Christ. All right, we're done. Thanks. Next week, we'll see some more examples in our final week of how to apply the Bible, and then we'll be done.